looking at the book of James. To give you a little bit of historical perspective, um, Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He has left a commandment to go into all the world and preach the gospel. This group of people have started to follow the teachings of Jesus. They're not known as Christians yet. They're called people of the way. As this group continues to grow and grow and grow, they're wanting, they got a lot of questions about what does this thing called Christianity look like? What does this thing called following God look like? And so James is going to write a letter that's going to circulate all over the area to these people. And because they are wondering what to do and how this thing, how, how they're supposed to act and all of that, he writes a letter that has 54 imperatives on 108 verses. An imperative is just simply a command. So every two, for every two verses in the book of James, one of them has, is tied to a command, so to speak. It's a book of action. It's a book of this is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing. So some people have a problem with the book of James because they think that it teaches salvation by works, and it's not. It's teaching the idea is that if you're saved, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, there are things that you should be doing because you're a Christian. So James writes this book from that perspective. Now what you need to understand is that at this point in history, Rome is in charge. The Roman Empire is growing. And the Roman Empire is massive. They have a common language. They have connected basically the whole known world together pretty much at that point with road system and um, a military presence in in cities. And so what's going to happen, though, is that Rome is all about money, entitlement, status, land. That's how you were determined as to whether or not you were somebody. You had title, you had land, you had wealth, often displayed in the way you dressed, in the people that you hung out with. So there is a huge dichotomy between a group of people who are incredibly wealthy and a group of people who are poor. And a majority of the people fell in that category of poor. Many of them working for somebody, a third of them slaves. Um, So the message of Christianity was very appealing to them. Because the message of Christianity said, we are all equal in Christ. There is no difference between rich and poor. There is no difference between male and female. There is no difference between Jew and Greek. In Christ, we're all one person. So to the, the person who lived in poverty, this was an incredibly encouraging message. So Christianity started to grow. Now, as Christianity starts to grow, that becomes a problem for Rome because Rome liked to control everything. And one of the things that Rome liked to control was your worship. So... Rome believed in a polytheistic world. They believed that there was a God for everything. So if you're having financial trouble, you go and make a sacrifice to the financial God. If you're having a drought, you go and make a, a financial commitment to the rain God. If you have flood, then you go and make commitment to the sun God. They had a God for everything. 
In fact, it got to the point that even Caesar himself, the top ruler of Rome, was considered deity. He was considered a god. So one of the things that happened was Christians came along and they believed in one god. So this became a difficult point. The people that James is writing to, James is writing within about with less than 20 years since the death of Christ. In the time that these people are going to get this book and start reading it, there's going to be a couple of emperors, but the last one that's going to be in their lifetime is a guy by the name of Nero. And Nero brings intense persecution to Christians in Rome, Rome proper, not the Roman Empire. And... Um, Many of them are going to to die basically at his hand. And Nero becomes a party animal. And literally Rome catches on fire. You've heard, you know, he partied while, while Rome burned. But because of his failure in leadership, he blamed the Christians for that. The reason he blamed the Christians for the thing is that the idea was that their worship of one God has angered the gods. And since they are practicing one God and they're ignoring the other gods, the gods are angry. So the gods started the fire as a retaliation. So his, his actual mindset was, it's the Christians' fault, let's get rid of the Christians. This is going to continue on in the thinking of Roman emperors. By the time we get to about 100 AD, in the area of the Roman Empire as a whole, it's estimated there are about 40,000 Christians. So we've gone from just a handful at the death of Christ to within about 50, 60, 70 years, 40,000 people. At that point, Rome now really has a problem because this group is growing. So the focus now becomes, let's get rid of these people. And so now, around that time, the, the Christian people now are, are, are executed in mass as entertainment in the Colosseums. So we have Christians dying because of their faith in Christ. And it was very, very easy. Because what they would say is, will you say Caesar is God? And no Christian worth his salt would say that. So if you will not acknowledge Caesar as God, that is treason against the emperor. That is an issue for death. And so they were incredibly creative in the way they killed Christians. It was a sport. Um, you know, we talk about how violent our society is now. Our society is nothing compared to Rome in 100 to about 140 A.D. Um, so as you have this mass, so to speak, killing of Christians, Rome thinks this is going to squelch Christianity. By the time we get to 250 A.D. in the Roman Empire, there are an estimated 6 million Christians. Because the persecution ignited this. They've never seen anybody willing to die for what they believed in. To die for their God. So, under persecution, Christianity just skyrockets. Until about 300 AD, when Constantine, when, when Constantine comes along, and he declares Christianity the official religion of Rome, baptizes his entire army. 
It is at that point. You watch the history of Christianity as it grows, 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 grows. And then it tanks. The reason it tanks, I think, is twofold. Number one, it became popular. Anytime Christianity becomes popular, then it's going to cease to grow because everybody's going to claim it, but nobody's really going to believe it. The second thing is it became political. It was tied officially to politics. It's always been somewhat political, but now it's really tied to politics. And I think any time you do those things, you can watch Christianity take a dive. So one of the things that we learn historically, and this plays itself out all the way up until present day, one of the things that we learn historically is that in times of persecution, real, genuine Christianity takes deep root and grows. In times of popularity, Christianity really loses its effectiveness. When James writes this book, he understands that a time of testing and temptation and persecution is coming to the church. So he wants these people to be solid. He wants them to be able to handle what's coming. He wants them to grow and have a deep, mature, solid faith. That's what this book is about. We talked about last week that we've talked about the idea that, first of all, he sees himself as a servant. His life is God's, so therefore God can do with it what he wants. We talked last week about the idea of needing wisdom. Wisdom means, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. I just need to know how to best honor you in this situation. We talked about the significance of praying for that. And this morning, we're going to look at another idea that's, that's inherent in the foundation of Christian growth, and that's the idea of humility. So with that in mind, let's jump to the passage and we'll talk about it. Here's what he says. Believers in humble circumstances, or poor, depending on which translation you read, ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away while they go about their business. Now, as we first look at this, you know, it looks like he's, talk, he's anti-money and we're, we're going to get there. He's not, that's not what this is about. But one of the things that he starts out is he starts out addressing the poor, which again, was a majority of the people who Christianity was appealing to. And one of the things that he says is those of you who are poor need to take great joy in your position. That seems somewhat ironic, but okay, so first of all, let me me remind you of something, because I think we lose this in America. When he talks about being poor, there's not a person in America that is poor. When you compare it to the world. Hey, um, if you are in America, if you have been born in America, if you live in America, you need to understand poverty in America compared to poverty in the world is night and day. So for all of us, we would fall in the category of the rich, right? In this context, in this world, poor meant a literal dependence every day on can I make it through the day? 
They were dependent on their job. They were dependent on their master. They were dependent on all of this. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have title. They didn't have a savings account. They didn't have any of this stuff. They literally lived a hand-to-hand, day-to-day kind of existence. And what James does is he writes to these people and he says, let me explain something to you. You need to take great joy in your position. Because you see, as a Christian, you are rich in the things that really matter. That's what his argument is. And as a poor person, here's what you need to understand. Because you are poor, you have had to learn to depend on God. The rich person has not necessarily learned that. The rich person has confidence in their, their success or their, 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 their money or their land or their title. And when that's taken from them, they're not going to be able to handle life. The poor person, on the other hand, has learned automatically to depend on God for everything. So when difficulty comes, you're going, you are actually more prepared than the rich person. That's what, that's what James's argument is. James's argument is that because you have not had plenty, you have learned to continually depend upon God every single day. He said you're actually in a better position for growth and maturity than the rich person. And again, to somebody who is living in poverty, what an encouraging message to them. Because the last thing that they thought, again, remember this, every time they walked out of their house, they were surrounded by the idea of you are less. You are on the margins of society. Everything from the way people dressed to the way they were treated to the way people interacted with them, they were reminded of their status in society. And James writes them and says, you need to understand, your stat, it's a good thing that you are struggling like you're struggling because it's actually preparing you for the difficult time to come. Right or wrong, those of you who are older, are you not scared for the generation behind us if we go into difficult time? They're not ready for it. They've been given too much. And when it's taken from them, they have no coping skills. Those of you who are older than I, and you had parents who went through the Depression, you know, you wonder why they hang on to everything? Because they watched themselves or their parents lose everything. Why? They've learned that lesson. And one of the things that happens is, is what, what James is arguing here is those who have had to struggle, those who have not had much, they appreciate what they have. They have prayed and worked for what they have. They end up valuing it more than the other person, the rich person. Okay. So one of the things that you see here in the book of James is he starts out by saying, look, you need to understand One of the things that you have going for you if you're one of those who's struggling, you're actually better prepared to grow. And then he addresses the rich. Um, And again, he warns of the dangers of wealth. Um, 
And the analogy that he uses is one that's familiar to them. It's the idea of something that looks good in the morning, but as the sun intensifies during the day, it starts to wilt. Hence, believe it or not, these are the exact same plants. These are the same plants. Um, everybody's going, whoa, who takes care of your plants? Um, no, um, this, we had a wedding, and what happens in a wedding is we shove all the plants in the back rooms, and some of them get mis-watering. That, that's this one. Um, this one got water. In fact, Greg was going to water it this morning. I said, no, no, don't water it. I need it. Um, so anyway, this is not a reflection on Greg's greenhouse, all right? Um, you know, buy a plant from Greg. No, uh, no, that's not a reflection. Okay, it, it, it's so. Here's what he said: Those who put their confidence in wealth, this is what your life looks like. And your confidence is in your bank account, and your confidence is in your land. How much land you farm? Remember the days that you, you know, somebody asked, you know, oh, I'm a farmer. What's first question? You know, how many acres? Okay, if they go, well, you know, I, I, I raise cattle. What's the next question? How big? How many, how many you raise? Okay, that's the mindset. That was the same thing in that day. Only it was about land. It was about title. It was about what, what, coat, what clothes you wore, whether or not you were a member of the Senate. It was all about that. What James says is when you put your confidence in this, you need to understand it can become this in a moment. So his argument is, going forward, if you have your confidence here, you're in trouble. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But one of the things that you have to be very, very careful of is putting your confidence in it. One of the things that you cannot do is believe that it's because of you. Well, you know what? I made better decisions than my neighbor. That's why I got more than he does. Whoa. Well, you understand, I'm a good businessman. I went to school and I got this degree and that degree. And so I have, I'm qualified to be. Stop. If God snaps his finger, you can't blow your own nose. Everything that you have, everything you have is a gift from him. For whatever reason, he has decided to give you this. He gave you the ability. He gave you the talent. He gave you the insight. He gave you the work ethic. He gave you all of it. And what James is saying is this. You need to have humility. If this is where you are, and this is where we all are as, as Americans, you need to realize it is all of God. I guarantee you, you would not live like you're living now if you were born in a hut in PNG. Why? Because God allowed you to be born here. 
with all of the things that we have available to us in America. And what James is saying is, when you get ready, to, if you're going to grow like God wants you to grow, you have to have a humility about you. Honestly, for the poor person, it kind of comes naturally. Because you don't brag about, let me show you what I don't own. I farm zero acres. I have no cattle. You know? Oh, I'm impressed with you. No, I mean, you know, that, that's what he's saying. So this person, I'm not saying they automatically gravitate towards God, but they're in a better position to grow. Versus this person who thinks that they, they have what they have because of them. Um, oh, I could get in trouble by saying this. Um, before I met my wife, okay, I dated a girl who was an artist, okay, and, um, I had this for years. I I don't know where it is now. My wife wanted me to get rid of it. Um, she wanted me to get rid of two things. She had painted me this really cool picture and I had it for years and somewhere, somehow it's gone away. Um, (laughs) It meant nothing to me. She means nothing to me, okay? My wife meant everything to me. But um, I, I'm an art person. I like art, and it was a really cool art piece. And then she made me a bookmark that I had for you. I may still have it, if I, if I, if I don't know where it is. Um, but here's what it said. And I don't know why she gave it to me. But it said, man was created from dust. And dust that is stuck on itself is mud. Um, I don't know why she gave it to me, but um, <laughs> I had that for years. You hear people go, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. Everything that you have came from God. And you need to be humble about that which God has given you. Because when difficulty comes, and all of it is gone in a heartbeat. You're still okay. That's why you see over and over again, that's why Paul said, look, I've, I've been here and I've been here. It doesn't matter, I'm with God. God was with me here and God was with me there. And it's so important that we understand this. Because I think sometimes what happens is, as we head into difficulty, we think, oh, it's because of my decisions. Oh, it's because of this. Oh, it's because of that. No, no, no. It's because God has allowed, for whatever reason, to bless you and give you what you've got, and it is all His. You're nothing more than a steward. That's it. And you have to understand that, because as difficult times come, it is essential for us to grow. Two takeaways as we kind of head into this whole passage. Um, and again, I just got to tell you my mindset, and you can disagree with me if you want. Um, I have no problem with that because I'm just guessing. It is my belief that we are heading into difficult times. I can be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I think things are going to be getting very, very difficult, particularly financially. That's my belief. 
Um, times of testing, times of trials, times of tough decisions, I think are in front of us. I don't see people embracing Christianity. I see us defending and, and being attacked more, not less. I don't believe that whatever happens in the election is going to make it any better. Because it's not an election issue. It's a heart issue. doesn't mean I don't vote for the guys or, or gals that I think are following Christian principles. It just simply means that I think America's turned from God, and we don't want anything to do with God, and we're going to pay a price for that. And I don't have, I think it'll be the best thing for the church. But I think tough times are ahead financially. So I think one of the things that you have to do is you have to look at this passage and you have to do some things for yourself to sit down and ask yourself some really tough questions about finances and money. Um, One of the things that I do with couples when um, I'm getting ready to do a wedding ceremony with them is I have them take a quiz on how they view money. Because how you view money is very, very important. Um, Most people, there's about four ways that most people view money. They view it as control. Uh, Some people view it as security. Um, Some people uh, view it as enjoyment. Um, They see it as uh, uh, basically, uh, I, I have it to be able to enjoy it. Um, and then some people see it as status. <clears throat> I think it's very important that you understand how you view money. Um, for my wife and I, we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, my wife grew up in a home in which she didn't realize it, but basically every weekend, they lived in Virginia Beach area, every weekend they went crabbing or fishing. She just thought it was something fun to do. She didn't realize that's how he was feeding, that's how Charlie and Betty fed five kids every week. Um, So for my wife, money is security. I grew up in a middle class, upper middle class family. My dad was executive every, every three to four years. It was another promotion. It was another job. We moved into another area. So we would often have to live in neighborhoods that we knew were going to increase in value in four years. So I grew up in a home where we would go shopping for a house, and it was, do I like the location of the bedroom? My wife grew up in a home where uh, four girls in one bedroom. For me, as I grew up, I see money as enjoyment. I'm not taking it with me. So I want to be able to spend it. That might mean giving it to somebody. That might mean spending it on a vacation. That means, So you hand me money. My first thought is, how can I get rid of it? What can I enjoy? What can I do with it to have fun? What can I do with it to help somebody else? My idea is giving it away. My wife's idea is security. It becomes very important when we have decisions to make. Um... And so we've had to navigate that balance between the two of us. Um, I think it's important that you understand how you see money thing. I think, I think you have to look at how you got it and what are you going to do with it. 
What's the purpose for you to have it? I get nervous when people want to put their security and their future in the money thing. Well, I want my retirement to be X number of dollars. I want to have this much in here. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with it is when that's where your confidence and security is. That's when it's a problem. When that's what you're trusting in, instead of the God who gave it to you, that's the problem. Um, I have no problem with the idea, and, and this is what I've told my boys, is look, I think tough times are coming. My advice to you right now is pay off every debt you can pay off. Because I grew up in a world of 18 to 20% interest rates. And this generation knows nothing of something like that. And I said, you know, ultimately, that your advantage. So I'm, I'm, not about, I'm not about planning ahead. I'm not about investing. I'm not about any of that stuff. But when that's your confidence, or when your confidence is in the fact that that's what got you there, is you got you there, that's a problem. And that's what James is saying. There has to be a humility about you. Um, when you look at the teachings of Christ, I mean, listen to what Christ says. Lay up yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt, thieves don't break through and steal. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. All the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, lust of other things entering and choke the world, it becomes unfruitful. And he said, take heed, beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Paul said it this way, not that I speak in respect of one. I, I've learned wherever I am, I'm content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I, everywhere in all things, I'm instructed to be full. I've been hungry. But to abound and suffer need. He said, I, I've been through all of it. Listen, And Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. The rest of the stuff will be added unto you. I think we have to be careful of this. We have to be careful of this idea of thinking that what we have is because of what we did. What we have is because of what God has given us. There has to be that humility. And I think that's the second idea. There has to be a humility about <clears throat> your growth going forward. There has to be a humility that says, you know what? God has always taken care of me and everything that I have is from him. So I'm going to focus on him. It's about that relationship. It's, it's, it's about that fellowship. Um, Paul or James actually is going to argue here that actually the guy who's poor is actually set up a little bit better than the rich person. Because the rich person, there's going to be that tendency, there's going to be that pull to trust in riches going forward. There's going to be a tendency to trust what you have saved up. Here's what he argues. Go ahead and save it up. As long as you understand this is what could happen to it tomorrow. Because it's not about this. It's about your relationship with the Lord. 
Because you see what was going to happen is, just think about it. Think about it from their perspective in this century. They're standing there asking, being asked to deny Christ. The poor person. Deny Christ and we'll take everything from you. Can't get blood from a turnip. Good luck. I ain't got nothing for you to take. I'm not giving up my Christ. Versus the rich person? We'll take your lands and you'll be homeless. We'll take your wealth and you'll be penniless. Deny your Christ. That's tougher to endure. That's what he's arguing. But if that person has a faith and strength in Christ and can look at it like Paul does and say, that's okay, go ahead and take it. It's God's anyway. Go ahead and take my money. It's God's. If God wants you to, God doesn't want me to have it, God doesn't want me to have it. That only comes from a humility that understands it's all from God. That's his argument. And one of the things that I would say to us as we go forward is this idea of we have to realize we are not entitled to to any of it. This entitlement mentality, I, I talk to older people. You know, we went through this whole school loan thing this past week. And 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 I I I, I talk to older people and they're, they're like me. They're so upset at the entitlement mentality that exists in America today. And yet, we fail to see it in Christianity. How many times have you dealt with somebody who believes that God should have handled this situation this way? And because God didn't handle it the way I wanted Him to handle it, I'm not going to have anything to do with God. I'm entitled to God doing what I asked Him to do, and God didn't do it, and I'm mad at God. Versus a, God is in control. I'm going to trust Him. God, I wanted you to work it out this way. We talked about this in Sunday school. The disciples were a little miffed at Jesus when He didn't stop the beheading of John the Baptist. Why didn't He do anything? Why was he not even concerned? If you look at it, if you look at the story, it troubled him greatly. We have the disciples, they're kind of the mentalities. Where's God in all this? I mean, you raise people from the dead who you don't even know, and you let him die? See, God's God. And I want to challenge you with this idea, because I think sometimes, We get this entitlement mentality. Okay, God, I've prayed for this, and you've got to do it this way. One of the things that is fundamental to being able to grow and to be able to handle trials and troubles and tribulations and stuff that comes your way is a humility that says, God's in charge. And Lord willing, if I get, if I'm able to pull it off, we're going to see this in the life of a Christian who comes later. 100 A.D. by the name of Ignatius. Um, The focus has to be on God. Not your stuff. Not your security and your money. 
or your titles or your lands or your positions. It's not about any of that. It's about the fact that God has incredibly blessed us. And I would suggest that every problem you and I deal with this week is a first world problem. Can you imagine? We live a life where our issues are first world problems. Because that's what we all get to experience every day. You know, um, we actually in America get to the point that when you hit a certain age, we start giving you money every month. Don't go there, preacher. You need to know. I earned that. No. You are allowed to be born in America where they set up a social security system and God allowed you to be born here to enjoy that. I'm entitled to that. Really? Really? Be careful. Be careful. Because in a heartbeat, this can be the world we face. You know who survives this? People who have focused on their relationship and everything that they have as a gift from God. Not people who think it's all because of them. That's the warning as we go forward. And that's the challenge. So this morning I end with this. James helps us to understand that humility is a foundational growth principle. Whether rich or poor, a humble spirit focuses on a relationship to Christ as essential. When life and death trials come, our status and money won't matter. But our relationship and faith in Christ will be the only thing that allows us to stay strong. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's easy for us to get sucked into this world system of thinking that it's about stuff and money, and status, and position, and all of those things. But Lord, when difficulties come, it really boils down to our faith in you. So help us. Lord, may we all seek wisdom in how to best honor you. And may we all have a humility of spirit about everything that we have been given, and everything that we struggle with. These things we ask in your name. Amen.